0: And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel in chapter number 27, 1 Samuel chapter 27. We're ending the first part of this series of the life and ministry of David. We'll be taking a pause right when David becomes king and continue that later on. But in this stage, we could see all the things that God has been doing to work on David's heart to prepare him to become the king of Israel. And at this time, in recent times, that Saul, the current king, has been chasing after David. And two different times, he has sent an army after David and his men. And two different times, God delivered Saul in front of David, but David honored the man of God, honored that this was God. God's authority in his life, and that he would not raise up his hand against God's anointed. And that we learn quite a bit about that, about the idea of submission. Even when authority is wrong, just because it was God that placed him in that authority, we submit to that. And, And again, we counted how many times Saul tried to kill David. And that we got up to about 10 different times. 10 realistic times where Saul Would have and killed David if God would have let him. And so it is no wonder when David begins to search within himself. It is no wonder that David begins to go back into survival mode. And oftentimes when we hit survival mode. When we hit a place where we are fearing and hurting and broken. That we fail to look at God. But we look to our emotions. We look to how we feel. And this is exactly where we find David in 1 Samuel chapter 27. 1 Samuel 27, and notice with me in verse number 1. And David said in his heart, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. There was nothing better for me than I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines. And Saul shall despair of me to seek me any more into the coast of Israel. So I shall escape out of his hand. And David arose and he passed over with six hundred men that were with him unto Achish, the son of Maak, king of Gath. And David dwelt with Achish at Gath, he and his men and every man with his household, even David with his two wives, Ananim the Jezreelitis, and Abigail the Carmelites, Nabal's wife. And it was told Saul that David fled to Gath, and he sought him no more, or no more again for him. And David said unto Achish, If I have now found grace in thine eyes, let them give me a place in some town in the country, that I may dwell there. For why should thy servant dwell in the royal city with thee? Then Achish gave him Ziklag that day, wherefore Ziklag pertaineth unto the kings of Judah unto this day. And the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was a full year and four months." And David and his men went up and invaded the Geshurites and the Gezerites and the Amalekites. For who those nations were of old the inhabitants of the land, as thou goest ashore even unto the land of Egypt. And David smote the land and left neither man nor woman alive, took away the sheep and the oxen and the asses and the camels and the apparel, and returned they came to Achish. And Achish said, Whither? Have ye made a road today? And David said, Against the south of Judah, and against the south of the Je- and against the south of the Kenites. And David saved neither man nor woman alive to bring tidings to Gath, saying, Lest they shall tell on us, saying, So did David, and so will be the manner of all the while he dwelleth in the country of the Philistines. And Achish believed David, saying, He hath made his people Israel utterly to abhor him, therefore he shall be my servant forever. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 27? 1 Samuel chapter 7, and notice with me in verse 1, David said in his heart. David said in his heart. And with the Lord's help, we want to explore this, that David said in his heart. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And as we come up to you today, I'm just asking that you would just give me special wisdom and discernment as we open up the Word of God today. And that as we explore the matters of the heart... That we understand that in it are all the issues of life. I'm asking that you would help us to have good discernment as we quickly just describe some things about the heart. And that you would help us to be determined to seek after you with a pure heart. Seek after you with all innocence. Seek after you without being double-minded. Lord, I'm asking that it would all be clear as we learn about here. And also be warned what happens when we fail to seek after your will, but instead seek how we feel. I'm asking, Lord, that you would just help someone today. Help someone with a spiritual decision that they may think that they're doing what's right, but they haven't stopped to consider you and ask you what you would have them to do. Lord, let this be a life-changing message. Let it be a helpful message. And again, it can only happen if it's you that's doing it. So the best I know how, I surrender myself to you. I give you my mind. I give you my thoughts. I give you my heart. That you do with it as you see fit. So you can accomplish your own work tonight. We love you. Thank you for being a wonderful God. And I'm looking forward to seeing what you're going to do. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Here in verse number one. It says David looked within his own heart. We understand that this is. A big phrase here that it's often read over, but it's carrying the idea here that David went with what his emotions said, and nowhere in this passage he sought for God. In fact, he doesn't seek for God until a chapter or two later, or actually two chapters later. He doesn't even take time to seek after God. He is running off of emotions. We understand we have to be careful because your heart is deceitful. The Bible says it's wicked. The Bible says who can know it? Do you know that your heart can lie to you? Do you know that there's a way that may seem right to you? It may feel right to you. But in the end, the Bible says that its ways lead to destruction. It leads to heartbreak. It leads to failure. It brings us further than we would ever want to go and cost us more than we would ever going to be paid. We have to be careful because we are made emotional creatures. You know, the Bible places a great emphasis on the heart. The Bible speaks about the heart 823 times. Now, when it speaks about the heart, it's not talking about the pumper, it's not going pump, 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 pum. It's talking about the seed of the emotions. When it speaks about the heart, it speaks about whom we are. The Bible speaks about, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, that we are made up of spirit, of soul, and body. In our spirit is the candle of the Lord. The candle is the candle whether it is lit or not. But when you get saved, the candle becomes lit. But everyone has a spirit. The Bible says that we're made up of spirit, we're made up of soul. In our soul is our will, intellect, and emotion. In our soul, we have will, intellect, and emotion. In our body, we have our five senses. With our spirit, we're God-conscious. With our soul, we are self-conscious. And with our body, we are world-conscious. Well, the Bible over 20 times makes the term soul and heart synonymous with each other. And so when we speak about the heart, we're not speaking about a different part. We are actually dealing with the idea of the heart. Uh, And the soul, those are two of the same things. We're talking about the thing that makes us us. It's what we think with. It's what we feel with. It's what we make um, uh, our decisions with. That's what we're speaking about with the heart. We know that we're made up of emotions. God made us with emotions. But we have to be careful when our emotions make the decisions within our life. That there are times that it feels right. We have to be careful when it feels right. We have to be careful when it feels bad. We have to be careful with what it says. Because we have to search after God because our feelings, our emotions, our heart will lie to us. In fact, the Bible gives something very specific dealing with this idea. We're going to turn back to 1 Samuel in just a second. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Proverbs chapter 4. And I want you to see this within your own scriptures. Maybe you'd like to mark this, but how important God speaks about the idea of the heart. In the book of Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23, it says this, it says, keep thy heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life. <laughs> keep your heart with all diligence for out of it comes the issues of life of life so the Bible says in verse number 23 that we're supposed to keep our heart the word keep has the idea of guard protect to look after the Bible says to protect guard keep your heart with all diligence the word diligence carries the idea of being alert of continually watching over it don't give any slack don't walk away from it but continually guard protect keep that heart why for out of it are the issues of life. We understand that the issues of life that we go through are matters of the heart. And that if your heart is not right with God, then your heart will lie to you. If your heart's not right with God, your heart will deceive you. If your heart's not set up with God the way that it should be, you will make wrong decisions. We understand the, this is a very spiritual nature. This is the idea of utmost importance of guarding, of keeping our heart. Now in the Bible we could see that there are many adjectives ascribed to the heart. We understand that an adjective is a word that, that describes, modifies a noun. And throughout the Bible it gives us several different descriptions. In fact, it gives us 12 types of hearts. Uh, actually 12 sets, two, as 12 sets of two, 24 specific types of hearts, 12 types of heart that we want to review really quick. And if you don't mind, may I just give you a quick rundown? We're not going to spend a lot of time with this. I'm going to turn this into a series later on and spend a lot of time. But I want to go ahead and give you the Bible definition and show the comparison of the hearts. If you don't mind, let's see some of the types of hearts in the Bible. The first one we'll see is a clean heart versus a wicked heart. A clean heart versus a wicked heart. When we deal with the idea of the types of heart found in the Bible, we have a clean heart or a wicked heart. The idea of a clean heart is one that has been cleansed of sin. It starts with salvation. When you get saved, God cleanses you and cleanses your heart. That until someone's been saved, they cannot be clean. Afterwards, we have stuff like 1 John one nine That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we understand that when a person sets, you have one of these two types of heart. Right now, you have one of these two types of heart. You either have a clean heart or a wicked heart. And it all depends on how... You have cleaned, or you've allowed God to clean your heart. First of all, by salvation. Second, by confessing sin and allowing God to keep it clean. That at any moment you have a clean heart or you have a wicked heart. Notice, if you don't mind, a second set of hearts that is given. We see not only a clean heart or a wicked heart, but we see the Bible describes a pure heart or a double heart. A clean heart or a double, or a pure heart or a double heart. The word pure carries the idea, in this case here, of having a clean conscience. Meaning that we're seeking God clear. There's nothing in between me and the Savior. That having your conscience clear... That has the idea of having a pure heart. Your conscience is no longer pricked. Your conscience is clear. You have taken care of anything between you and man. You've taken care of anything between you and God. It is now a pure heart. And the Bible speaks quite a bit about having a pure heart. The Bible speaks about in the Beatitudes. Blessed be those who are pure of heart for they shall see God. That we should have a pure heart. The idea of a double heart carries the idea that it's two-sided. That, hey, I'm going to serve God, but not. I want to serve God, but I also want to do this. It carries the idea of a double hearted. Someone says that that you got to pick a side of the fence. Because someone who tries to go on both sides of the fence, all, all they're going to get is torn britches. You got to choose. The idea of a pure heart is that you of seeking after God. There's nothing between you and the Savior. There's nothing... Uh, For conscience sake, you are clear with conscience between you and man and you and God. And you're seeking God with a pure motives. I want to see God. The idea of double heart has the idea, oh yeah, I'll seek God, but I want this. That it's not on one thing. It's not purely for the Lord. If you don't mind, the Bible also describes another set of hearts. And that is the wise and understanding heart versus a foolish heart. A wise and understanding heart versus a foolish heart. The idea of wise and understanding carries the idea of discernment. Discernment is far-seeing. It's not just seeing where people are at, but where people are going. Do you understand that not all people can be dealt with the same way? You cannot deal with people the same way. You have to find out where they are And help them move to the same, to the next level. We deal with lost people differently than we deal with saved people. We deal with baby Christians a lot differently than we do with mature Christians. We deal with obedient Christians different than disobedient Christians. You have to understand that we have to have wisdom. How do we deal with a person from where they're at and help them to move forward? We don't deal with all situations the same that we have to apply biblical principles, we have to have an understanding. There are some times that you need to open your mouth and declare it. And there are some times you need to shut up, smile, and nod. There are some times that people are not ready to receive correction, and we need to be quiet. There are some times that they are, and we need to rebuke them. Where does that come from? A wise and understanding heart. And the Bible speaks quite a bit about this, especially dealing with the five types of fools that are found in Proverbs. We've preached that before. But you have to understand where people are at and how to deal with them, where they're at so we can move them forward. And the Bible speaks about a wise and understanding heart. By the way, where does wisdom come from? Wisdom comes from above. It comes from depending upon the Lord when you're dealing with people. And God can give us the wisdom. He can give us the understanding. He can give us the discernment to deal with people. Whereas a foolish heart is not giving regard to God, not depending on God. And this is when we open up our mouth and we give someone a piece of their mind. And we lose that piece of our mind and it still doesn't help them. It's where we make things worse by acting or reacting rather than having wisdom and discernment with dealing with people. The Bible goes on and gives another type of description. And this is the idea of a broken and contrite heart versus a hard heart. A broken and contrite heart versus a hard heart. The word broken and contrite carries the idea of a crush, of a crushing. You say, well, I don't want to be crushed. You know, what's amazing is that it gives reference to an idea of a type of rose that's found in the Middle Eastern area. That in order to make the perfume from it, that rose has to be crushed in order to release the fragrance. Until it is crushed, it doesn't release the beautiful fragrance. And God makes a comparison here that in order for us to have that sweet fragrance to God, we have to be crushed, we have to be broken. We have to be contrite because the opposite of broken and contrite is a hard heart. This type of hearts deal with the idea of us responding to God. If we have a broken and contrite heart, the Bible says a broken and contrite heart, God will not despise. It carries the idea that we're broken. We realize that we're nothing. We realize that we're pathetic, we're weak, and so when God tells us to do something, We're willing to do it because we realize that we're nothing. We're glad to respond to God. Whereas a hard heart is a heart that no longer wants to respond to God. And may I tell you where you find a hard heart at? In church. You know where where it happens? When a preacher preaches a message and people do not respond. Every time you do not respond to God's message that he specifically said this is for you. Your heart gets a little bit hardened. And then you hear another message. And you refuse to do something with it. And your heart becomes hardened even more. And so it will slowly crust over. May I say you become inoculated. You become vaccinated towards God's message. And so the preacher could preach. And you say, well, I didn't get anything from that. That's more of an indication of your heart rather than the preacher. Because your heart is hard. Because you're no longer sensitive, tender to responding to God's word. But a broken and contrite heart, when you are broken and you're so tender to God's word, and say, God, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And he gives you it. and You say, yes, sir, thank you. And no matter what it is, you're willing to do it. That comes from a broken and contrite spirit. You know what God does to break up that fallow ground? He crushes you. He breaks your dreams. Until you finally say, God, it's not my way, it's your way. It's not what I want, it's whatever you want. Again, I don't want to spend too much time. I could spend whole sermons on each one of these. But I'm giving you a little taste now of what the Bible has to say. The idea of a broken and contrite heart versus a hard heart. A heart that no longer wants to respond to God. What else does the Bible have to say? The Bible also speaks about the idea of a tender heart versus a bitter heart. A tender heart versus a bin- bitter heart. The word tender heart, it's carried the idea in the book of Ephesians where it says that we are to be tender hearted towards one another, forgiving one another as Christ, God for Christ's sake has forgiven us. That the idea of tenderhearted is the willingness, it's easy to forgive people. A bitter heart has a hard time forgiving people. And so here it's carrying not our relationship with God, but carrying our relationship to offenses to others. Do you know that we live in a world where someone's going to offend you? How do you respond to that? When someone says something that they shouldn't have, are you going to hold it against them or are you going to let it go? This is the idea of a tender heart. You're willing to forgive others because you realize how much you've been forgiven of. You've been forgiven of quite a bit more than you want to admit. And when we hold it against other people, that's a bitter heart. Can you just let things go or do you hold on to it? This is the idea of the, between a tender heart, easy to forgive, very easy. You offer it up like nothing. Or a bitter heart where it takes work to forgive people. You hold on to those grudges. You hold on to those offenses. That's the type of heart that you're currently at. Notice if you don't mind, the Bible speaks more. It speaks of a meek and lowly heart versus a proud heart. A meek and lowly heart versus a proud heart. Interesting enough that a meek and lowly heart is the only type of heart that Jesus himself refers to himself as. I am meek and lowly. Someone who is meek and lowly is someone who has fully and completely submitted themselves to God. They've thrown themselves completely at Jesus' feet and say, your will is perfect. You tell me what to do and I'll do it, no problem. That it's the idea that your strength is under God's control. The idea of lowly is humbleness, that you've made yourself a servant, and the servant doesn't get to pick what the master wants him to do. The servant's job is to say, Yes, sir, I'll get it done. That's the idea of a meek and lowly heart. The problem is, we don't like to be servants, we want to be the master. We want to run our own lives. We don't want anyone, including the Lord Jesus Christ, to tell us what to do with our life. That's the idea of a proud heart. Is that you're not fully submitted to God's will. I'll do God's will if it's convenient to me. I'll do God's will if he runs it through me first and I approve it. I'll do God's will only if it's something that interests me. That's a proud heart. This carries the idea of how you respond to God's will. If God says do it, do you fight him or you immediately, yes, sir. No matter what it is, you're the boss, I'm the servant. And so this is a type of heart. that Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor, and I will give you rest. Where does the rest come from? It comes from fully submitting unto God. Being fully in God's will, being fully under His control. Life is much easier when Jesus is making all the decisions and you don't have to make the decisions. All you have to do is say, yes, sir. That is where the rest comes from, is being submissive to His will. If you don't mind, we're only halfway through. The Bible speaks quite a bit more about the conditions of the heart. The Bible speaks about the circumcised heart versus the deceitful heart. The circumcised heart versus the deceitful hearts. The idea of circumcised is a physical uh, surgery that is done to show the separation unto God. It carries the idea in that surgery to remove the impurities of the Gentiles, remove the impurities of the flesh, and that I'm submitted to God dealing with the idea of spiritual circumcision that you're circumcised in the heart is that you removed the spiritual impurities and you are ready to worship god dedicated, separated unto god a circumcised heart is someone that says god i worship you whatever you want you remove anything out of my life that you want I am all yours, whereas a deceitful heart carries the idea that I can worship God however I want. This is the idea, well, I don't have to go to church to worship God. Can someone be a Christian and not go to church? Yes. Can they be a good Christian? No. Remember, God says you must worship me in spirit and in truth. God will only accept worship His way. May I give you an example? You go all the way to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 4. You have two young men by the name of Cain and Abel. One was a keeper of the field, the other was a keeper of the sheep. And when it came time to worship God, both of them gave their best. Both of them did it with the heart to worship God, but only God accepted one of their worship. Cain gave his best of the crops of the field. Abel gave his best from the flocks of the sheep. And God accepted Abel's, but he refused to accept Cain's. Why not? Because it didn't do it the way God told him to do it. You understand there's a lot of people who give their best for God and say that they're worshiping God, but God does not accept their worship because it's not done the way that God told him to do it. This carries the idea of a circumcised heart versus a deceitful heart. There are many people who think they're doing God a favor and they're not, and God's not accepting it. He's not having it because we're not doing it according to truth. We're not doing it the way that he told us to do. Half the time, they don't even ask God what he wants. They're doing it the way that they feel. Well, I love to worship God this way because it makes me feel good. Well, again, we're not basing things off of feelings. We're basing things off what God said. And this is the idea of a circumcised heart versus a deceitful heart. The Bible goes on and it describes a large heart versus a lean heart. A large heart versus a lean heart. What kind of heart is this? Well, this deals with the idea of our relationship to others, our relationship to others. A large heart is someone who's used as a conduit from God, that God gives them finances or ability or whatever, and they give it to others. And God gives them more and they give it to others. It's almost like a pipe that has water in it. If you have a pipe that water is running down, what happens at the end? It runs out. What happens if you plug up the hole? No more water can get into it. In order for the water to flow, both ends have to be open. God gives us the gifts, and we give it to others. Others. We give. This is the idea of missions. That God has given us finances, we give back. And because we give back, he gives us more and continues to go out. This is how it works. When we plug the hole, he can't give us anymore. It's stopped. It's all done. The idea of a lean heart is when we're no longer willing to give to others. We're no longer givers. It's when we start start being stingy, we get a lean heart. It doesn't care about others anymore. The Bible goes on and talks about a different type of heart. It talks about the good and faithful heart versus the unbelieving heart. The good and faithful heart versus the unbelieving heart. This carries the idea of stewardship. Of stewardship. So it carries the idea that moreover it is required in a steward that a man be found faithful. The word faithful in this idea carries the idea that he could be trusted. He could be counted on. He could be depended upon. That God says, I've given him something to do, and I know he's going to take care of it. That is someone who is good and faithful. This is someone who, who could be trusted. An unbelieving heart carries the idea of, well, I don't have to do this for God. Is God really going to take care of me? Is God going to do this? And it carries the idea that I'm not being obedient to what God has trusted me with because I don't know what he's going to do for me. Am I going to get anything out of this? Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a type of heart that refuses to do produce action because of the unbelief. If you believe that God's going to take care of you in the example of finances, then you have no problems giving. You know why I tithe? Because I know that God's going to take care of me. It's, it's our worship time. If I don't believe God's going to take care of me, I'm not going to give. And that just finances. Let's take the idea of service. Hey, I serve God. I'm willing to go out, pass out tracts. I'm willing to dedicate my time to God, knowing that he is faithful and he is going to reward me in kind. I'm not wasting my time. But if I don't believe, well, you know, this is a waste of time. It's not going to matter to God. Well, then I have an unbelieving heart and it's going to stop my action. You see, this all carries the idea it's a matter of the heart. No wonder the Bible talks about that to keep our heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. There's a lot of issues, and we're not done yet. Notice, if you don't mind what the Bible says, it carries the idea of a perfect heart versus a whorish heart. A perfect heart versus a whorish heart. The idea of a perfect heart here carries the idea of our worship towards God. Do you understand that there is many kings in the Bible who was not perfect in actions? This word "perfect" here doesn't carry the idea of that we're without sin. In fact, many of the kings were sinners that God said was perfect. Why does it say they were perfect in heart? Because they had pure worship towards God. That the one thing about all of us is that we're sinners saved by grace. The qualification to be saved is that you're a sinner. And God gives us much grace. As soon as we think we're not sinners, we're not depending on God's grace. You know what me as a pastor needs every day? God's grace. I cannot live this life on my own. Given the the opportunity, I will run to sin and so will you. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. I have to run to him. And so to gum him with a perfect heart is a heart that says, God, I need you. I can't do this by myself. I need you. It's you. It's you. And it's all about you. The idea of a whorish heart carries the idea of serving other gods. A whorish heart is serving other gods, whether it's God of self, the God of money, the God of your job, the God of television, the God of your games, the God of Facebook. All of those other things, anything that detracts your heart from serving God completely and purely and realizing I need him, that's a whorish heart. So the idea of perfect heart is not that you're without sin. It's with a pure heart that you're seeking after God and say, God, I need you. I love you. I need you. You're the one I need. The Bible goes on and says, a sound and upright heart versus a deceived heart. A sound and upright heart versus a deceived heart. Now, whereas the heart before dealt with the idea of our worship towards God, this sound and upright heart deals with the idea of our belief towards God. This carries our doctrine, our belief, what we believe. And so the Bible talks about sound. The word sound carries the idea of healthy, a healthy and upright heart. This is something that lines up with scripture. Lines up with the truth of the Bible. That we're seeking what God meant by it. Not what we feel it means. Not what we think it means. It says that we have healthy doctrine. And when you have healthy doctrine you have a healthy heart. A healthy heart towards God. Whereas a deceived heart is one that has been lied to and given false doctrine. And they believe false doctrine. This is why it is important for a pastor to preach doctrine often. To teach what the Bible says. Because doctrine is something that's always under attack. False doctrine is always trying to creep in. And when false doctrine creeps in, a person is deceived. And when they are deceived, they're going to have a hard time serving God the way that he wants them to serve. Their heart is not going to be healthy because they don't have healthy doctrine. Healthy doctrine produces a healthy heart. Sound doctrine produces sound heart. Same thing. If we want to have a a healthy spiritual life, it starts with spiritual doctrine. So many people have lives that are messed up. And not because they choose to be messed up. It's because they have been deceived by false doctrine. And it shipwrecks them. It keeps them from being obedient. It keeps them moving forward. Because they have something in mind. They've studied. They've researched. They, I feel this is correct. But it doesn't line up with Bible doctrine. And it makes them unhealthy Christians. Because their heart isn't healthy. We have another heart that is described in here. And this is the idea of a merry heart versus a discouraged heart. The merry heart versus a discouraged heart. And whereas all the rest of the hearts are something that we keep and that we guard, the merry heart, listen to this, is the reward we get for having the rest of the hearts correct. A merry heart is the reward we get for having all the rest of them in line. Whereas a discouraged heart is a heart that comes, that we have something that we failed God in and haven't got it right. And so we have a discouraged heart. That makes it simple, isn't it? If you have a discouraged heart, that means there's something wrong with the heart somewhere, and it needs to be examined, and it needs to be fixed. The idea of a merry heart, not like a fake laugh, <laughs> not an idea of a smile that's painted on, but inside, not just a peace that passeth all understanding, but happy in Jesus, comes when we have the rest of the hearts lined up according to scripture. Isn't that wonderful? And so we have an indicator here that if your heart is troubling you, it's because there's something wrong. If you don't have this peace, this merriment, this happy joy in serving Jesus, then there's something wrong with your hearts and one of these other areas. Doesn't that make it simple? Now, at the same time, it doesn't make things fun because we have to admit that there's something wrong with our heart. And if you don't mind, that was all the introduction. Let's get to the message. Turn with me if you don't mind. By the way, this is why the Bible says in Proverbs 4 and verse 23, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it cometh forth the issues of life. Turn back with me to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 27. 1 Samuel chapter 27. And we know that David here has followed his heart rather than looking to God. He has gone to Look for what he feels like. He's looked for what he feels is right rather than seeking after God. And in, verse, in chapter 27, we see the consequences of when you follow your heart rather than seeking for God's will. Notice if you don't mind, in verse number one, we see this. We see the failure to seek God's will. The failure to seek God's will, verse one. And David said in his heart. I shall now perish by one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better than me than I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines. Saul shall despair of me to seek me any more into the coast of Israel. So I shall escape out of his hand. So David takes time. Before he talks to anyone else, he's talking to himself. He's dealing with his heart and he looks at his heart and says, this is what I feel. I feel that eventually Saul's going to catch up to me and he's going to kill me. Remember what God promised David? You will be king. If God says you're going to the other side, you're going to the other side. Because of his heart, he takes matters in his own hand rather than saying, God, where do you want me to be? Where do you desire me to be? The center of God's will is the safest place. And he failed to seek for God's will. Whenever someone starts trusting their heart, they're already starting on the wrong path because they're going on their path rather than God's will. They're already starting to go somewhere where God did not intend them to do. Which brings us to a second thing. When you have a failure, the dangers of trusting your own heart, not only do you fail to seek God's will, but you end up associating with people God never intended you to associate with. You start to associate with people with that God never intended you to associate you with. Notice in verse 2. And David arose and he passed over with 600 men that were with him under, unto Achish, the son of Maok, the king of Gath. King of Gath. Gath is one of the cities of the Philistines. And David dwelt with Achish at Gath. He and his men. Every man with his household. David with his two wives. They brought everyone. And verse number four, and it was told to Saul that David fled to Gath, and he, Saul, sought for no more for him, David. So David went to the enemy. He went to Gath. He went to the Philistines and joined up with them. They were God's enemies. They hated God. They cursed God. And you know where David's hanging out with? People that hated God. People that cursed God. And he's there because he feels this is the right thing. Let me tell you that God never wants you to go hang out and associate with people that's against him. Now, there's a difference between trying to witness to them and tell them about the Lord. But it's a different thing altogether to go fellowship with them. You could go try to witness to a drunkard without taking a drink. You can go and witness to a crack addict without doing the drugs. You understand that you can go to where people are without being in the associations. We could witness to them. You don't have to go join the bikers to go win the bikers. And so he's fleeing, by the way, not to win them to the Lord. He's going for his own sake. He's not worried about them. He's worried about himself. And next thing you know, he's associating with people, enemies of God, and that's where he's living. By the way, it says he lives there for a year and a half, basically, a year and a half. He's living and dwelling among the enemy of God. And when Saul hears it, he says, ha, David has finally joined the enemy. I don't have to chase him anymore. He's already done it to himself. What a horrible thing is that when you stop following the will of God, when you start looking for your own heart, it will lead you to the place where you're associating with people that you know you shouldn't be associating with. How many people have ended up in in relationships, friendships that they regret later on because they were hanging out with the wrong crowd? Notice, if you don't mind, as we go on, Not only would you end up associating with people that God never intended you to associate with, you'll end up in places that are not God's will for you to be in. Notice with me in verse 5. And David said to Achish, if I have now found grace in thy sight, let them give me a place In a town in the country that I may dwell there. For why should my servant dwell in the royal city with thee? Then Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Wherefore Ziklag pertaineth unto the kings of Judah that day. And the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was a full year and four months. You know what happens when you start following your heart? You end up living in a place that you're not supposed to dwell in. You understand many Christians believe it doesn't matter where I live. It does matter where you live. God has a good and perfect and acceptable will for your life. Someone who follows their heart. Well, I just can't live here no more because of this and this. I just feel like everything will be better, as David said, out in the country. Well, if God doesn't want you out in the country, then it's the worst place for you to be. Absolute. Well, I just feel. That's the problem that a lot of people end up having is that they feel And they're not searching for God's will. God has a place for you to be. And you can know it. But when you depend on your feelings. Well I just. This is what my heart says. I just believe this is best for me. You know God knows what's best for us. Better than we ever could know. And so many people end up with wasted time. And wasted lives. Because they're not in the location that God wanted them to be at. Notice if you don't mind as it goes on. Verses (laughs) number 8 and 9, we see that you end up doing things in order for you to cover up your lack of following God. You end up doing things to cover up your lack of following God. Verses number 8 and 9, let me give you just the the thing of it. David goes down south of uh, the Philistines and he goes to towns and he begins to defeat them just to kind of beat up some of the people nearby. But he doesn't stop in defeating the army. He kills men, women, children, and babies, leaving no witnesses because he doesn't want it were to go back to anyone that David did this. Isn't that horrible? You understand, God does nothing in secret. If you are at the place where you're ashamed to admit, that you went somewhere, you shouldn't have been there. If you're at the place where you're ashamed to say that you have a friendship with someone, you probably shouldn't be friends with them. You understand that you start doing things in order to cover up your lack of fellowship. For example, you start hanging out with people and you want to invite them to church, but you're afraid they'd actually come and tell everyone where you met them at. That's a problem. That's a problem. The idea that you start doing things in order to cover up your lack of following the Lord. Notice with me as it goes on. Verses number 10 through 12. We see, And Achish said, Whithersoever you made a road today. So he goes back to uh, Achish. Achish goes, Hey, David, what you been doing? What have you been conquering? Where have you been going? And David said, Against the south of Judah. And against the south. And he goes on and explains and David saved neither man nor woman alive to bring tithings to Gath. So he killed all those people, so that way they wouldn't get back to Achish, saying, Lest they shall tell on us, saying, So did David, and so with the manner of all the while he dwelleth in the country. And Achish believed David, saying, He hath made his people Israel to abhor him, and therefore he shall be my servant forever. Now let me pause there's an idea of geography that makes us come in view. David went down and killed non-Israelite people who were living near Israel. However, the way that he explained it to Achish is that he went south and was destroying towns of Israel and killing the Hebrew people. So when Achish heard that David's down there destroying towns and David leads him to believe that David is destroying Israelites, Achish is happy and said, this is great. He's made all the Israelite people hate him. He's going to be my servant forever because he can't go back home. When we get to the place where we're following after our heart, rather than following God's will, we find ourselves lying to cover up. What we've been doing. Let me tell you as a litmus test if you have to lie, you are not right with God. You are not in God's will. That's the litmus test. If you can't be honest with your biblical authority, you have to lie to your preacher, you're in trouble. You're not where you're supposed to be. If you have to lie to other Christian people, You're in trouble. You're not where you're supposed to be. You are following something other than God's will. But I just know this is where I'm supposed to be at. If you have to lie, then you're not where you're supposed to be at. Notice if you don't mind one other thing. Notice with me in chapter 28 verses 1 and 2. And it came to pass in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for warfare to fight with Israel. And Achish said to David, Know thou surely that thou shalt go out with me to battle thou and thy men and David said to Achish surely thou shalt know what thy servant can do and Achish said to David therefore will I make thee keeper of my head forever now what happens is that Achish and his army is preparing to fight against Israel and David says I'll fight with you he's willing to fight with God's enemies against God's people When you start following your heart and trusting your heart and not looking for God, you start to fight battles that God never intended you. Oftentimes, people who are not right with God because of doctrine, not right with God because of sin, they fight against their pastor. That's not who God wanted you to fight with. That's not one of your spiritual enemies. But someone who feels the need they have to fight with their pastor to justify where they're at is Not where God wanted them. You're fighting against enemies God never intended you to fight against. Does that make sense? It's a telltale sign. As a pastor, if someone goes up and starts fighting with me about doctrine, about what they're doing, whatever else, there is something wrong. Because you're supposed to be... We're supposed to be fighting together on the Lord's side against God's enemies. We're not enemies. The, pre- the Baptist church down the road is not our enemy. We're not in the fight against them. We're trying to work together to see people get saved. You understand? When you're fighting your own will, you start fighting against people you shouldn't be fighting with. We're not going to war with other churches. That's not the goal. We're not going to war with people inside of the church. That's not the goal. That's why there's a prohibition in the book of Corinthians against Christians suing other Christians. Because we're on the same side. Why in the world do we need to fight against each other? But when you get to the place where you have friction against pastor or against the church, against submitting, you may have to consider, are you on the wrong side? Have you been following your heart or following after God's will? You see, these are just telltale things. This is just walking through the passage and see. David spoke in his heart. He followed his heart and didn't seek for God. And this is where it ended up. He's on the wrong side of the matter. Step by step by step. And he is not in the right place. And he's not going to be in the right place. But good thing there's a God that's so gracious who's going to lift him back. He's going to do things in David's life to pull him back. And that same God is so gracious to you. Aren't you glad that even if we find ourselves where David is on the wrong side, that God doesn't wipe his hands off and say, you're done. But in fact, God still has a will. He says, I want you back. I want you back. Come unto me. And you know how that works? We have to admit that we're wrong and he's right. We have to make, maybe there's a possibility that I've been trusting my heart, not trusting God. Maybe there's a, you know, give, maybe there's a possibility I may not be the one that's right in this matter. Maybe God is. Let me find what God says about this. Just maybe. There's a wonderful God who will take you as you are. You just need to come to him. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We have to be careful because the Bible says to guard our heart with all diligence for out of it is the issues of life. And that our heart is either right with God or wrong with God. It's that simple. Let's strive. Let's guard. Let's keep it so it's right.